You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians to the 5th chapter. Our passage this morning deals with two verses, verses 15 and verses 14. I'm going to read our text first, and then we will turn to the Lord in prayer. The Apostle Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Would you pray with me? Father, I think of the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, where he asked of you, sanctify them in your word because your word is truth. It is what lights our path It is what satisfies us. So we ask that your word this morning would sanctify us. That as we learn what it means to say yes to you, Jesus, to grow in obedience because we love you, that we would be changed and transformed by your spirit to be more like you, Jesus. Would you do this for us this morning as only you can do through your word. It is in your name I pray, amen. When I was a junior in college at Liberty University, um, I tried out for a college ministry team that traveled around the United States and hosted um, D-NOW weekends for student ministries. At the time, I wasn't interested in student ministry and I would not foresee where I am today, but I was interested in trying out for the band, which made sense at the time, and I also wanted to try out for the preaching team, which did not make as much sense at the time. The band audition was pretty simple, but the preaching audition was was a little bit more difficult. First of all, it felt weird to have a preaching audition. But I had to prepare and preach a text that I was assigned. I had 15 minutes to talk, and my assignment was 2 Corinthians chapter five, and it was verses 11 through 15. And I had never preached before. I was pretty afraid to even use that word. I never talked about God's word in front of others like that for more than five to 10 minutes. And I would love to tell you that I faithfully stayed within the confines of my 15 minute time slot, but I did not. Hopefully I've grown in this area. I was so impacted though by these verses, verses 14 and 15, that I could not curb my eagerness to share what the Lord had taught me as I studied his word, as I studied these two verses. See, within this simple statement, verses 14 and 15, I find the most compelling reason to follow Jesus Christ with my whole heart and to live a life of joyful obedience. I find the most compelling reason to say, yes, Jesus. Look with me again at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Our sincere response of yes, Jesus, 
It flows out of a heart and life that are controlled by love. Like Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. And if we think about the Apostle Paul, he is no stranger to the topic of love. This letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, spoiler alert, is preceded by another letter. That one is called 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, we find the most quoted wedding passage. It's often called the love passage where Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast. So Paul's letters often deal with love. And they deal with our love for one another. They deal with our love for outsiders, our love for insiders, our love for Jesus and his love for us for the love of Christ controls us. So which category then does this statement fit into? Who does the love belong to? Who is actively loving and who is being loved according to this verse? Think about this with me. If I asked you today, I said, hey, are you a Christian? And you looked at me and you said, yes, Ben, I'm a Christian. And then I asked you and I said, do you love Jesus? And you said, no, I don't love Jesus. Those two things wouldn't really go together for me. That would be concerning for me. If you are a Christian, I would say you ought to love Jesus. We should love Jesus. We are gathered here this morning, in fact, not just to celebrate our graduates, but more importantly, to worship and adore Jesus Christ because we love him. That is why we are gathered this morning. But I can remember as a sophomore in college reading this verse and my immediate assumption here is that it is speaking about my love for Christ. But is it? My Greek at this point is a little bit rusty and yours may be rusty as well. But what we find when we study the context of this passage and we look at the original language is that love in verse 14 does not refer to a love that proceeds from me for Christ, but is a love from Christ for me, the love of Christ, the love that belongs to Jesus. So Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14, it tells me so. And the love of Christ, church, the love of Christ is is no ordinary love. It is not affected by the same sinful curse that so often can distort and vilify our love for each other, or even our love for Christ. Listen to the words of Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. Paul writes this, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is an echo of what he has previously said in verse 35 of Romans 8. He writes, who shall separate us from what? From the love of Christ. So the love of Christ, it is not like my love. It is eternally binding. It holds us forever. Nothing can separate us from his love. In Ephesians 5.2, we are told that his love for us is sacrificial. Nobody makes Jesus lay down his life. Right, Jesus says, I lay down my life of my own authority, of my own accord. I lay it down. I choose to lay my life down for you. His love for us is sacrificial. 
And in Ephesians 3.19, we are told that to know the love of Christ is greater than the accumulation of all else we can ever learn and ever know. To know the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. Surpasses all knowledge. It is better, it is sweeter, it is richer, it is fuller, it is deeper. And as this passage says, it is for me. It is for me. So it is not my love for Jesus that Paul speaks of here. It is his love for me. And after making this statement, Paul goes on in verse 14 to say that the love of Christ controls him. It controls Paul. What a strong statement, right? What is the connotation of this word control? Do we like that word? No, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I just wanted to let you know you're a really controlling person. Is that a compliment? It's not received as a compliment. I don't think it's meant as a compliment. So why then is this word used in verse 14? What is Paul's purpose in this? We're gonna go a little bit deep here. I'm gonna tell you the Greek word. Okay. The Greek word is seneko, and it means this. It means to hold, to constrain, to urge, and to be a prisoner. To hold, to constrain, to urge, to be a prisoner. And there are several uses of this word in the New Testament. Here's an example of one of them. Acts 18.5, Paul writes this. He says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. It's that word Seneca right there. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. In another translation, it says Paul was completely devoted to the word. The idea here is that Paul has devoted himself. He's being controlled by the pursuit of the word, of the ministry of the word. So in verse 14, the love of Christ, it controls his followers. Now remember, this verse is not saying that I'm controlled by my love for Jesus. I'm controlled by his love for me because how inconsistent and wayward I would be if I let my life and my love for Christ dictate how I should live for him. Think about that, right? If I say today, Jesus, I will live for you today to the extent that I love you today or I will live for you this year to the extent that I wake up and I feel like, I love you. If I let my love for Christ dictate his call for me to live for him. Because my love for Jesus is inconsistent. It is often weak and distracted. It rises and it falls. Think about that hymn that says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But the love of Christ for me, church, the love of Christ for you, if you are in Jesus Christ and you believe in the gospel, the love of Christ for you is not inconsistent. It does not rise, it does not fall, it is not weak, it is not distracted, it is constant. The Bible says it is from everlasting to everlasting. It covers me, it carries me, and as Paul says here, it controls me. So what is my foundation built upon? Not my love for Jesus, but it is his love for me. As 1 John says, who loved me first? Was it I that loved him first or was it him that loved me? He loved me first. So now as a follower of Jesus, I get to celebrate and live in the words of Galatians 2.20 and I can say, it is no longer I who live. I no longer have control. 
but it is Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what for me? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the love of Christ moves us. It should drive us forward, it should humble us, and it should strengthen us. And it is not as though we become like robots though incapable of, of making a, a choice to be controlled or, or, or not be controlled, and we have no choice. We do not become like robots. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, when we recognize the love that Jesus Christ has for us, we gladly submit to that control. We are not overcome with no ability to say yes or no, but how can we say no when we recognize the love that Jesus has for us? Paul goes on to say in verse 14 that we are controlled by his love, Jesus' love, because we have come to a decision. We've come to a decision, and this decision completely influences our lives. He writes, because we have concluded this. So we say yes to Jesus because we are controlled by his love for us, and because we are driven by our conclusion. In Paul's mind, there's a significant reason that Christians should be controlled by the love of Jesus Christ for them. Where then is the proof that he loves me, right? If I'm staking my whole life on the belief that Jesus loves me, where is the irrefutable evidence to this? So the question is very simple. How do I know that Jesus loves me? And if I were to ask you that this morning, how do you know, where is the proof that Christ loves you? What would your response be? Would, would it be because he's given you a good family and relationships and financial success and a good life? Or would you look at your life today and say, actually, if Jesus loves me, then he's being very discreet about it. Because I, as I look at my life and the brokenness in my life, I do not feel loved by Christ. How do you measure his love for you? Several weeks ago, I was speaking at Mount Washington Mills FCA Thursday morning gathering, and the schools have been coming out of some incredibly tragic events that have really affected our student community. And so I was seeking the right message of encouragement um, to share, especially with these students in the middle schools. And I desperately wanted to communicate to them that they were highly valued in the eyes of God regardless of how they felt about themselves or saw themselves or how other people saw them. And so the Lord kind of directed my attention to Matthew 10, 31, where Jesus says, fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. And I started off this lesson, because it was an FCA lesson, by showing them pictures of a bunch of different pairs of shoes that outwardly looked like pieces of junk to me, but in reality were worth like thousands of dollars. And so they had to guess the value of these shoes. And we ended the game by guessing the value of the most expensive diamond in the world, which is the Hope Diamond. And it's estimated to be somewhere over $350 million. And then I told the students, I said, hey, Something more valuable than the Hope Diamond is in this room. I said, what is it? You know, and they talked about it for a little bit, and they started laughing, and they were pointing to themselves, and they were like, me. And so I let them get quiet, and I asked them, I said, why? 
Why are you more valuable than something that's $350 million and something that's a trillion dollars? Why are you more valuable than that? The Bible tells us it's because the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the most valuable treasure you and I could ever gain, he lays his life down for you, right? Philippians 2 says that he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how do I know that Jesus loves me? Why should the love of Christ control me? Where do I look for the proof of that? Look to the cross and find proof of his love for you. In verse 14 here, Paul makes a distinction between casual knowledge, just something that we know, and informed conclusion, something that we have concluded. When we conclude something is true, we are arriving at the end of the discussion. We've considered the other possibilities, and now one answer has proved its validity. Let's think about maybe a a real-world example here. I know that the speed limit on Bardstown Road is 55 miles per hour. And I know this because I see it pretty much every day. There's a five on the sign, and then over here, there's another five, right? So I know that it's 55 miles per hour, right? It's not a six followed by a five. It's not a seven followed by a five, right? Maybe for some of us, it's not an eight followed by a five. I would also add it's not a three followed by a five, just to throw that one out there, okay? So I know that the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. I know this. I see it. Two fives right next to each other. However, knowing that the speed limit is 55 is not the same thing as concluding that the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. When I conclude that the speed limit is, in fact, only 55 miles per hour, then that means I have determined that 65, 75, and 85, and 35 are no longer correct options. Therefore, my conclusion is supposed to shape my response to that. I know that the speed limit is 55. Have I concluded that the speed limit is 55? Have you concluded that the speed limit is 55? I have met many people that know the name Jesus Christ. They know about him. They know that he gave blind people back their sight. They know that he fed a bunch of people and he performed miracles. And they may even know that he died. And they may know that he rose again. But have they ever reached the point where knowledge becomes conclusion? And they say, I know with full assurance that the gospel is true. It is not enough to know about Jesus In Romans 10, 9, Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then what else must accompany that? Belief in your heart. My words and knowledge about Christ mean nothing if they do not flow out of a heart that has concluded that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Like Peter says, I know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God who died and rose again. Do you just know this? Do you just know about Jesus? Or have you concluded that this is true? 
the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer talks about the confidence that we should have in the gospel. If we believe that the gospel is true, if we have concluded that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again, then we are able to do as Hebrews 10, 22 through 23 says. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 20 says this, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The New American Standard Bible says it like this. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is fact, church. This is not myth or legend. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is historically verifiable and attested to. We, we do not put our faith in, in, in something blind that we have no evidence of. History has concluded that the gospel is true, and so I would ask you, have you concluded that the gospel is true? And this must be a daily conclusion for me. Right, I have to daily remind myself as a broken person striving to follow Jesus that the gospel is true for me. It's not a one-time conclusion that I now see in the rearview mirror every once in a while when I look up. It is a daily choice to believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior and then to live a life that agrees with this conclusion. Look with me at our last verse, verse 15. Paul writes this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Christians are controlled by the love of Christ. They are driven by their conclusion that the gospel is in fact true. And finally, they are called to respond. In verse 15, Paul makes considerable mention to the death of Jesus. That one in verse 15, the one who has died for all, he's talking about Christ. Then he says, therefore all have died. And again, he says, he died for all. Again, he's talking about Jesus. So he's commented on the love of Christ, the love of Christ first, as a motivator for Christians to say yes to Jesus, to live for Jesus to be controlled by the love of Christ. But now he draws our attention to the death of Christ as a motivator and as a reason for our obedience to God. So we must ask, ask ourselves this, this question. What does the love, excuse me, what does the death of Christ, what does it mean for me? And Romans 6 provides us with the answers. This is verses five through seven in Romans chapter six. Paul writes, for if we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So if I believe in the gospel and I consider myself to be a follower of Jesus filled with the Spirit, evidently growing in Christ-likeness, then the death of Jesus has greatly affected me. I've been united with Christ, right? That's the language in this verse. I've been united with Christ in his death. And the New Testament uses this language of old self and new self to describe the spiritual transformation that takes place and that happens for sinners who become saints as they are changed by Jesus Christ. And we find this language the old self, it's, it's not just put off to the side, it's not just put in the back seat. The old self is put to death. That's what the Bible says. It's put to death. Just as Christ was put to death, we too experience a spiritual death to ourselves and our old way of life. And this death in Christ, it gives way to new life in Christ. In the verses that follow our main text today, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17, we are told that Christians are new creations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What does the text say? Behold. It says the old is gone, and it says, Behold, look at it. The new has come. This is what the death of Jesus achieves for Christians. The old self, the old life, it is crucified with Christ. It is put to death, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am given newness of life. I can walk in newness of life. And therefore, according to Romans 6, verse 7, this is the statement that he says, we are free. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are free. So what do we do now with our newfound freedom? What do I, what do, I do as a new Christian, as a free brother or sister in Christ who is no longer bound by the power of sin, death, and the grave. Paul gives us the answer here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. He says, those who live, and he's talking about Christians who have found new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, those who live might do what? No longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is our response, right? We are called to live for Jesus, to lay aside your selfish pursuits, to lay aside your desire for personal glory, to take up your cross and to follow Christ. That's the call. And graduates, this would be my hope for you that you would not be like the millions of students that graduate today, that cannot wait to make a name for themselves, and that may believe that the world now revolves around them. That's not true. That's a lie. What the gospel encourages you to do is to go use your gifts, to go use your intellect, to go use your creativity that God has given you to make whose name great? The name of Jesus. Go make his name great. Don't go make your name great. Go live for him. But why? Why do I live for him? Why do I lay my own life down? And why do I follow Christ? Why do I do this? Is it because he's worthy? Yes. He is worthy of this. 
Is it because I will go to hell if I reject him and do not live for him? Yes, that is also true. Is it because I get to live forever with Jesus and spend an eternity with him in heaven? That is also true. But what is the reason that Paul gives us here? At the end of verse 15, he says, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see how personal this is? You and I do not give the purpose of our lives and the breath in our lungs simply for a good cause or, an, or a good movement or a, a movement that keeps our kids in church and, and out of trouble most of the time or, or an idea that makes us feel a little bit safer when we think about how scary death might be. No, I lay down my life and I surrender myself to a person who loves me and died for me so that I could live for him no matter the cost and I could live with him for eternity. Jesus does not die for an idea of freedom or forgiveness or the hope that maybe it will happen. Jesus dies for the church. He dies for his bride. He dies for individuals. He dies for people with faces and names. He dies for you and he dies for me. So we come back to the words of Galatians 2.20 that Jesus loved me, that he loves me and he gave himself up for me. And so as we consider, I hope as you consider the personal message of the gospel that you would respond to live for Jesus Christ, to say yes to Jesus as we conclude today, I want to leave you with, with some final thoughts. If you have a bulletin, and you can see kind of the sermon outline, the outline on that page is actually out of order. It's not a misprint. The outline on the page says, we are controlled by love, we are driven by our conclusion that the gospel is true, and then we are called to respond, right? That's the physical order that also appears in our Bibles. But if we pay attention to the language of the text, we should see that the order is actually different. First, we are driven by our conclusion that the gospel is true. Then we are controlled by the love of Christ for us. And lastly, we are called to respond and to live for Jesus. So the first two are flipped. And I would say how dangerous it can be to mix up the order here. What happens when we confuse this order or if we remove even one of these steps? So what happens to me when I have not been changed by the gospel, have never really believed in Jesus, have never concluded that he is my Lord, and yet I walk around and act like I have license to live and breathe in the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus offers? Well, I will not respond to the call to live for Christ, certainly not to suffer for him. And I will not belong to him for eternity if I've not concluded that the gospel is true. What if I believe in the gospel? And this may be the spot for many of you this morning. What if I believe that the gospel is true and I strive to live for Christ, but yet I cannot accept daily that Jesus would love me, that he would love me with an eternal love, that he would love me with a binding love, that he would care for me if I do not believe that he loves me, if I cannot accept this, then I will feel the constant pressure to earn his favor. 
and deserve his grace, which the Bible tells me I can never do. I can never hope to do that. What if I say that I believe in Jesus and I reassure myself that he indeed loves me because he proved it on the cross, but I do not live for him. And I continue to live for myself and I make no real practice of growing in holiness or putting to death the deeds of my body. How can I say that I know him if I do not live for him and love him? So I'd ask you, what will your response be as you leave here today? What will your daily choice be? In a moment, we will sing a song that that tells the story of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. I want to read some of the lyrics to you. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And then the response, oh Father, use my ransom life in any way that you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. And then this chorus that we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. So as we sing and respond to God's word, know that the altar is open. You're invited to come and pray. You're invited to, to pray from your seat. And I will be down here down front to talk and to pray with anyone. Do not leave today with a head that is full of knowledge about Jesus Christ, but a heart that has never concluded that the gospel is true. Conclude that the gospel is true, that Jesus is ready to save you. He is able to deliver you and that he has a relationship with you that is out of love, his great love for you. Be controlled by the love of Christ for you and respond to the call of obedience today by saying, yes, Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your great love. See what great love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. Your word even uses language that your love has been lavished upon us, that you've given it to us in abundance. And Jesus, we know this love. We are controlled by this love through the conclusion that the gospel is true. We must believe and have faith in the gospel and turn from our sins because we have been offered forgiveness and grace that we can never earn ourselves. So we thank you, Jesus, for the gospel, for your love that that, that controls us, that motivates us. And Jesus, you have given us the strength to live for you, to follow you no matter the cost, to lay down our lives for you. And while that may sound radical and crazy to some of us this morning, that is the call of the gospel. That is where abundance of joy is found. That is where peace that surpasses all understanding is found. As we follow you, as we surrender to you, Jesus, help us to do that. It is in your name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.